The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So continuing a reflection on equanimity this week. We've been talking about it in the context of exploring the seven factors of awakening in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness. And in a way, what I offered in the guided meditation is a little bit of a movement in that direction, noticing the relationship to the experience as we explore what's happening, as we explore just being with what's here, noticing how we are with what's here, what our relationship is to what's here is a, is a beginning to explore how, how we are in relationship, which may be greed or aversion or confusion. And, and beginning to be curious about that, opening to that. Oh, what's happening is there's this experience and I don't like it. Or there's this experience and I want more of it. And we feel the pull or the push around what's happening. That, that exploration, that kind of curiosity can create the conditions for our being okay with what's happening is this experience and I don't like it. And so it, it moves us in the direction of okayness, of equanimity, of balance of mind to be curious about what's happening and how we are with it. And then also in recognizing the, uh, the attitude or the relationship to experience, sometimes we might notice, as I pointed to in the guided meditation, sometimes we might notice that there is an okayness with what's happening. There is a balance of mind. And we might not consciously notice that when it happens sometimes because it, it can be quite subtle. It can be kind of quiet, that okayness. And so highlighting that, oh, what's going on is there's this unpleasant experience, but I'm okay with it. No problem. That begins to have us have our, our mindfulness taste the quality of equanimity, the quality of balance of mind itself. And that's one of the key instructions, actually, in the Satipatthana Sutta, is to begin to recognize when equanimity is present. And then to notice when it's absent. So when it's absent, like when we're noticing, for instance, oh, what's happening is there's this thing and I don't like it. So in, in the not liking is the absence of equanimity. But if we can recognize the not liking, then we can step into a, a bigger container that has equanimity about that. So when we're caught by a not liking, we can recognize we're caught by a not liking that would be the beginning of recognizing, oh, equanimity is not here. And paradoxically recognizing equanimity is not here is the first step to, to creating the conditions to support the arising of equanimity. Oh, equanimity is not here. I don't like this. Oh, can I be okay with the not liking? And that okayness having the, the beginning flavor of equanimity. And so equanimity, you know, in this early uh, conversation, pointing to some words that 
approach or kind of reflect the quality of equanimity when it's happening. Balance of mind, okayness, ease with what is, impartiality, acceptance, equanimity. Now these words, acceptance, ease with what is, impartiality, you know, they don't have a big flashy like feeling. It's not like rapture or delight or joy, but the, the, the quality is said to um, approximate what happens in the mind of somebody who is free from suffering, free from greed, aversion, and delusion. It's not, what it is not, is indifference or apathy. Sometimes the word impartiality might kind of skew us in that direction or make us think it means an indifference. Impartial, impartiality is not indifference to, it is, hmm, let's see, a way of standing in the middle where the mind can be balanced with all sides of experience. Not reactive to experience. Non-reactivity, another word that, that can be used in this field of equanimity. Our um, familiar approach to experience is to be reactive to it. We like it, we want more of it, we don't like it, we have all these ideas and views about it. And so the, the idea of, being, of having that impartiality, of being non-reactive, sometimes makes us think that if I, if I don't have some kind of reaction to something, then it means I don't care. But there is a... It's counterintuitive. It's not familiar to us, actually, this quality of deep caring and impartiality. Deep caring and non-reactivity. It's not a space of indifference. It's not a space of non-action. When our heart is unconstricted, when our heart is not fighting with what is, it will more deeply kind of resonate and respond in a skillful way to what is. And so there may be action that comes when the, when the heart has that impartiality. There may be action that comes when the heart is not in conflict with what is. It's not in conflict. When it's not in conflict, it can more clearly see what is and, and be able to discern with wisdom, what is a skillful action that may be helpful here for myself, for others, for both, to move in the direction of freedom from suffering? So the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta encourage us to recognize the presence an absence of the qualities, the seven factors of awakening, again, just to remind 
uh, as all the the equanimity is the seventh and the kind of the the um we can think of the seven factors of awakening as a movement towards kind of almost a path the first factor of awakening mindfulness where we begin being aware of what's happening wise mindfulness being aware of what's happening from with this perspective of curiosity and interest about human experience this is what the experience is just experience as experience not kind of how it relates to me but just that just this is experience so mindfulness the first factor of awakening investigation being curious that that sense of what what is what is happening and uh, a curiosity and investigation and interest in uh, is what's happening conducive towards moving me towards freedom or is it conducive towards keeping me caught keeping me stuck so that's this investigation factor this kind of in interest in what supports the movement towards releasing suffering and what keeps us caught and as mindfulness is aware of that as mindfulness is aware of what moves us towards freedom release from suffering and what keeps us caught the system begins to move more towards what releases us from suffering as i said in the guided meditation one of the great things about mindfulness when we recognize what is skillful when we recognize these beautiful qualities of the quality of equanimity the quality of okayness the quality of patience the quality of calm of ease when we recognize those it supports their cultivation it supports their growth and when we recognize what moves us away from suffering moves us away from freedom what moves us towards suffering the mind begins to let those go it understands the mind understands its own participation in those reactions and begins to learn how to release re- release those reactions so mindfulness investigation energy the third factor of awakening this in energy towards the practice as we start to see how the practice works as we start to understand that mindfulness actually supports us to let go of what's unhelpful and move towards what's helpful we gain a kind of a, an inspiration and a, a sense of yes this works i'm going to do this you know so it, it it kind of brings in that energy towards the practice this third factor of awakening the fourth factor of awakening is joy and we also start to see that the delight of the release from suffering we we experience from time to time the taste of uh the mind that has that ease and peace and our first taste of that bring quite a bit of joy and then tranquility the fifth um factor of awakening the mind beginning to calm down around its reactivity to really settle to 
to land with the present moment, to, to have a little bit more stability, quietude. And all of these coming together to support the sixth factor of awakening, concentration. The, st- the stability of mind, mindfulness and concentration, those two together stabilize the mind in the present moment, allowing us to more easily see what is here, more clearly investigate. I mean, that, that second factor of awakening is actually strengthened by these two coming together, mindfulness and concentration. The continuity of mindfulness strengthens our capacity to recognize what's helpful and what's not helpful. And these two together, mindfulness and concentration, very supportive conditions for equanimity, the seventh factor of awakening. So today, we talked last time a lot about cultivating equanimity. So we talked a little bit about recognizing it, just noticing the presence and absence, reinforced that today in the guided meditation. And... um, the, the last time we talked about cultivating equanimity by being aware of what gets in its way. So that approach of exploring what's here, noticing the reactions to it, all of the reactivity, greed, aversion, confusion, is kind of, uh, kind of filters or, or screens that keep us from seeing equanimity or, or block the equanimity. They are kind of counter to equanimity, but it's not it, the, the the way towards equanimity is to get to know, to get really familiar with all of that reactivity. One of my teachers in talking about wise view, understanding, um, which uh, is, is understanding is is really what equanimity supports. We could say that equanimity as an enlightenment factor is the condition that really allows us to be here with what is so that our mind can learn. It's like we need to be in that space of being okay with what is for our mind to truly understand how our own mind participates in the creation of its own suffering. And so... Um, we we begin to approximate that by being curious about how the mind participates in its own suffering. And so the uh, the exploration, Saito Uteshaniya has said, we get in the direction, we move in the direction of wise attitude, of this quality of mind that can be okay with what is, essentially of balance of mind. We move in that direction of having equanimity by getting to know what is in the way? What is wrong attitude? What is the attitudes of frustration, of greed, of aversion, of confusion? Really well. We get to know that really well. And that moves us in the direction of that understanding of that wisdom. And so that's, that's what we talked about a lot last time is exploring the, uh, what's in the way of, of equanimity as a pathway to cultivating it. It's not a mistake when we see difficult things happening in our practice. We're learning about our minds. And if we can have that kind of um, appreciation that, oh, this is, this is something to learn from, 
then it can be that ground for the growth of equanimity. There's some other supports for equanimity that I'd like to to reflect on today. Um, Almost more direct in a way, although they they connect. They connect with, um, they can connect with working with what's in the way of, of, of equanimity. Um, but it's, it's kind of a more direct kind of bringing in of a view or um, a perspective that might support the mind to come to some balance. So the first, the first support that, and they're, both of them are connected, these two that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, the first support is um, what I'll call wisdom reflections. They're reflections that we can bring into our practice. It's like wise, you know, wise things that we understand or have learned. And initially, these wisdom reflections might be um, what Saito Utejaniya calls, oh, they're right outside my door. I hope you can hear me still. Um, It shouldn't last too long. Um... Saira Utejaniya calls borrowing wisdom initially, that we may not understand directly some of the wisdom of the Buddha, but having heard teachers talk about it, sometimes we can bring these reflections into our practice as a way to kind of encourage the mind to continue to be present. So... um, some of the key reflections that the Buddha encourages us. And actually in the suttas, there seems to be an encouragement to actually bring these as thoughts into the mind. Um, The Buddha says, you know, one should reflect. This is impermanent. This is dukkha. And this is not self. So these are key three key reflections, wisdom reflections that the Buddha actually encourages us to bring in. So I'll take a little bit of time to, to um, unpack these just a little bit. And each one of them could be a whole Dharma talk. So this is really just a, <laughs> a little flavor of each. So the, um, the reflection on this is impermanent. Sometimes that reflection, you know, like if there's something difficult happening, just a reminder, okay, this is, this is impermanent. This won't continue. This, this has its life. It is here now and it won't last forever. That can help the mind. Like with pain, for instance, sometimes we can, we can, um, um, reflect on the impermanence of pain as a way to help our mind be able to meet it without so much resistance. So you can just try it, experiment with it at times. If you find yourself in a situation where you are observing something challenging, you could try bringing this reflection in, you know, this is impermanent. See if it supports the mind to have a little bit more, okay, it's okay to be with this even for a few moments. I mean, sometimes with pain, we can, we can only work with it for a little while, but maybe that reflection will give you a few more minutes of being able to 
hold it and see how reactivity kind of comes and goes and, and plays with the, uh, the painful sensation. That when the reactivity is diminished, the painful sensation is nowhere near as challenging. And when the reactivity increases, the, the painful experience, it's, it's like it multiplies the unpleasantness to have the, that reactivity. And so it may be that holding that reflection of this is this this painful experience is impermanent allows you to see the effect that the re, the relationship or the reactivity has. And so we learn something about how the mind and the body play together. So sometimes um, that reflection on impermanence can be really supportive. Sometimes, you know, I think these using these wisdom reflections, what I found is that whatever's happening in the present moment, sometimes there's one particular wisdom reflection that seems to just touch it in the way that the mind can go, oh, yeah, that's kind of what, that's the wisdom that really supports the mind to be able to land and to be here with this experience. Sometimes it's impermanence. Sometimes, um, sometimes, you know, it's especially when there's something difficult going on and it feels like, you know, impermanence is not like what the mind is willing to, to, to take up with that. You know, it's like, no, this feels like it's a long haul here. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not one of those things that just comes and goes. And so sometimes that the reflection of this is dukkha. This is stress. This is unreliability. This is, um, other words, other translations for, for dukkha. I like, I like unreliable, um, as a translation. It's, it's not a reliable place to land for lasting happiness. Stress, suffering, unreliable, un, um, unsatisfactory, another, another word that's, that's often used there. Sometimes I found that reflection is helpful because not only because it kind of identifies, yes, this, this difficult experience, this is stressful. This is painful. This is, this is challenging. So it, it kind of acknowledges the challenge of what's here. But it also, to me, especially using the word dukkha, for me, using the word dukkha here has been helpful because it, it reminds me that this is a, the Buddha's teaching. That the Buddha pointed to dukkha as being, as needing to be understood. In the first noble truth, the Buddha pointed to dukkha should be understood. And what, as dukkha is understood, we see how it is how it arises and that seeing that helps to lead to the release of it. And so sometimes in the seeing of dukkha, like I, at one point I remember at Shui Umin, uh, at Sayadaw Utejaniya's monastery, I was a couple of weeks into the retreat and there was so much unpleasantness, so much challenge, so much dukkha going on. And I was judging it. You know, I was trying this new practice uh, I was not doing the concentration practice that I'd been more familiar with. And my mind was saying, by 10 days or two weeks into prior retreats, there was a lot more 
calm and quiet and I was not suffering nearly this much. This, this practice doesn't work for me. You know, it's like, that's what the mind was saying. That's what, that's what the belief was, was, was doing. But at, at, I was just continuing. It's like, well, okay, Sayadaw says to just notice this. And the phrase kind of, oh, this is dukkha arose in my mind. This is, this is dukkha. And that, that, I don't, I don't think I tried to bring that in. This was, sometimes these wisdom reflections will simply arise. And sometimes that can be some of the most powerful ways that these wisdom reflections work. Because as the mind heard itself say, this is dukkha, it's kind of like, oh, right. This is exactly what the Buddha wanted me to understand. This is the, this is what the work is. And all of that idea that this was a problem, that the, that, that, that the dukkha was happening was a problem fell away. And the mind was just able to be with the dukkha with some inspiration. This is the path. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is not in the way of practice. This is the practice. And so that reflection on dukkha, for me, it's kind of like that, bringing that in, brings that whole understanding into the mind. This is dukkha. It should be understood. This is the path. This is where wisdom develops. So that reflection can be helpful at times. Sometimes the reflection on not-self, and, and, you know, sometimes not-self, just the reflection as the Buddha encourages, you know, one should reflect. This is not mine. This is not who I am. This is not myself. Sometimes that can be just the right reflection. Just, you know, especially the one about mine at times, you know, this the, the sense of ownership. This is not who I am. Sometimes that you know, when we're really identified with a particular emotion, for instance, self-hatred arising, this is not who I am. This is simply self-hatred arising. That can, that can have the effect of allowing the mind to have a little more space to be able to notice the qualities of, in this case, self-hatred arising. These wisdom reflections, in my experience, don't often um, create the conditions for whatever is challenging to vanish. So in, in the case of, you know, like looking at self-hatred, oh, this is not who I am. This is simply self-hatred arising. The conditions that that, that wisdom reflection doesn't necessarily create the conditions for the self-hatred to vanish in that moment, but it does create the conditions for it to be easier to be curious about it. Another way into the reflection on not self is kind of a different avenue, um, different language entirely, rather than using the phrase not self or this is not who I am, anything about I, me, or mine. Instead, it, it brings in the reflection around conditionality. What is arising is arising due to causes and conditions. It is simply a phenomenon that has been conditioned. It is a process at work. It it comes about because of prior causes, prior conditions. So that sometimes that way of reflecting, and, and essentially that's very connected to the understanding of not self. As we see 
the uh, what is arising in this moment as being conditioned by prior experience and not kind of stable, a stable kind of, this is something that's being carried around all the time. It, it is understood as being impermanent, unreliable, and conditioned. It's understood as, as not being some stable, reliable thing. There's not much traction or place for there to land the idea of self, because self often has this, this sense of, um, not always, but often has the sense of being a thing that's kind of like wandering through time, something stable that is wandering through time. And the uh, observation or the reflection on the conditionality begins to poke holes in that belief. So using wisdom reflections and, and, you know, borrowing wisdom, sometimes we, we bring these reflections to mind before we've had a taste of their truth. Just kind of taking or uh, taking our teachers or what the Buddha's said on faith, on, on kind of confidence. We sometimes move in that direction. We, we borrow that wisdom out of confidence that, well, it seems like that person understands something I don't understand. And they said, this is helpful. So I'm going to try it on. So sometimes it's that, it's that way. After we've had our own taste of, of understanding, after we've, um, had an insight or a a kind of a recognition with respect to some challenge, like really seeing the impermanent nature of experience. Sometimes we can kind of call into mind that memory or that experience as a way to enliven that reflection or to make it, that's kind of like it reminds us we understood that directly at some point. Sometimes with that, with understandings or with insights, we could call this, you know, when we've had our own taste of these understandings, insights. Sometimes with insights, they, um, sometimes they're just kind of like wordless. They just like, we just understand something without a lot of words, but sometimes they express themselves in language. It's, it's, it's like, our system understands something and then articulates its understanding to us. I've had this, this kind of experience happen. Um, and sometimes that language, you know, it's, it can be simple language. So for myself in seeing the self-hatred really clearly one time, seeing it arise, that the thought that the, 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 the seeing it so clearly, um, actually allowed it to disappear. It, that insight allowed the self-hatred to vanish in that moment. And then there was the articulation of what the mind had seen, which was, this is just a thought. This was a thought that arose and the mind believed it. So, so that got articulated in my mind, like this is just a thought. That understanding that that language, this is just a thought, became very useful for me over the subsequent days. It was very fresh 
the memory of that understanding was very fresh and that language evoked something of the memory of it. And so it, it really created the conditions over the subsequent few days to almost allow the mind to taste that understanding again. So it's kind of like borrowing the wisdom from ourselves in that, in that situation. And I have found for myself that using the language that my own mind has given me um, can be some of the most powerful, powerful language. And so, you know, playing with language, playing with how these understandings resonate for you, that, that can really help in using these wisdom reflections, help us to um, uh, connect with the the wisdom that's behind it. So using these wisdom reflections, um, sometimes they can be just actively brought in when there is a struggle or is a challenge. Sometimes they can be actively brought in, actively engaged with, you know, consciously reminding yourself this is this is this won't last, or this is dukkha, or this is nature this is that's another that's language that Saito Tejaniya offered around the conditionality that for me was very resonant this is nature of course this is happening these were the conditions and that arose this is nature so sometimes we can actively bring in these wisdom reflections when we are struggling and then this this is nature one is one that I have used a lot when when seeing challenging mind states in particular this is nature and it creates the conditions you know just bringing that thought into the mind creates the conditions for a little more spaciousness to meet the experience sometimes i've seen that as i as i described a few minutes ago these reflections can arise like this is just a thought you know that that arose in, and the dukkha one, you know, the, the, the struggle with the dukkha, that recognition, oh, this is dukkha. This is what the Buddha was asking me to, to, to look at. Those just arose. But, but what I would want to point to here is, you know, sometimes thoughts can arise in practice and they're worth connecting with. You know, we may have the inclination you know, oh, you know, oh, this is dukkha thinking, you know, just note it as thinking and, and don't pay any attention to it. Sometimes thoughts arise that are useful in our practice and learning to distinguish the useful thoughts from the not useful thoughts, really helpful. So, um, I think there was a little more to say about using wisdom reflections than I thought. So I think what I'll do here is just We'll just leave it with that, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring in the next topic next time, which is a deeper reflection, a deeper wisdom reflection, which is, is often pointed to as a foundation for equanimity, the reflection on karma. So rather than, you know, trying to do this in the last eight minutes, I will just let's open it up for, for questions, and we'll talk about the reflection on karma next time. Um, so, yeah, any comments or questions about using wisdom reflections or um, this question of equanimity, practicing with it, cultivating it.
Kate. I just want to say that these last couple weeks of this topic have been really fruitful and really helpful for me. And um, I've been doing the three-week practice intensive with Gabe and the folks from Common Ground. And um, and then another class I'm doing where there was a every day an aspiration, at, at, uh, an intention setting. And um, the coming together of all of this, I mean, just... Uh, Something about the way you've been teaching this equanimity thing, you know, um, noticing what's happening, noticing how I am with it, being able to open it up and say, okay, if I'm reactive with it, am I okay with that? And the arising of sort of like um, down this path is suffering, you know, uh, which is kind of another wisdom. It's sort of a wisdom reflection of. Yes, it is. (laughs) and, And sometimes it's like, the 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 uh, intention I was making every day had to do with um, particularly harsh speech with my partner, and then I went away to a cabin in the mountains for a couple of days to finish the intensive, and so I wasn't speaking much. So I brought up um, unkind thoughts about anything, and so when I would find an unkind thought, um, you know, just being able to go up, ah, you know, where that leads, and sometimes I would sit. I would like this morning I was sitting with it. And it was more like the Vipassana, the investigation of what that thought feels like. But a lot of times it would just be like, huh, not a good, not a good direction. Let's see if we can change that or notice something good or, you know, playing with it in whatever way. And I just felt like, I don't know, I just love these teachings you've been giving. And it's <laughs> really helpful. And the one other thing I was going to say, I was going to, I was going to uh, put it in the chat and then I thought I'll just say it with the, um, that helps me sometimes with the dukkha is with a kind of compassionate sigh, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the tone is so important there. <laughs> yeah, the sweetness or the tenderness with which we say that, exactly. Yeah, thanks, Kate. Bob. Hi. Hi. Uh, <laughs> I have a question about how how we come to actually believe that what we are experiencing in our life is all of our practice because i i keep falling back into i don't like this or it shouldn't be this way you know i how come how come i'm not perfect i mean no not you know, but you know what I'm saying? It's like it, I keep um, encountering this kind of a non-belief. Like I don't believe that my life is what it is. And so I'm always trying to fight to get somewhere else. So the 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 movement towards this kind of recognition it partly requires some faith. I mean, so a little bit of kind of a sense of willingness to engage, willingness to lean into, let's see what happens. You know, let's see what happens if I do explore this as just part of the practice, including I don't believe this is part of the practice. You know, including that. 
You know, so to be willing to notice, wow, I just really, I doubt, this is doubt. You know, I don't believe this. So this is doubt. What happens if you kind of get curious about that doubt? That's that, what, what does it feel like to have that doubt? And, and what is happening? You know, so, so some kind of curiosity around whatever is, feels like it. Again, it's whatever is in the way. The willingness to engage with it for myself, you know, Early on in my practice, and I tell this story a lot, but it was so, it was so powerful for me. Um, anger was a huge part of my life. And I learned somewhere that, you know, I, I read a book that, that, that encouraged me to observe the anger instead of just following through on it. And my, my sense of that was like, I have no idea how that's going to work. You know, just like, it doesn't make any sense to me. It feels like I should try to get rid of this anger as opposed to just simply looking at it. But at, at some point, I, I i mean, at a certain point, I was so, um, I kind of felt like I hit bottom. And I was willing to try anything, including being aware of the anger. And, um, and so it was that willingness, you know, that willingness to look at, wow, the light, my life is a mess. What is it like to know my life is a mess? Wow, it's really painful. It hurts. And yet what happened as I did that was I began to be able to navigate my life. It's like when I was just like in this mess, I wasn't even able to do anything. I was kind of hamstrung. I just felt so stuck. Like there's no point in anything. And um, and yet that kind of recognizing, wow, it, it's hot. It hurts. It hurts to have this anger. It hurts to feel this this messy. What do I do with this? I don't know. I guess I go back to work. You know that 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 it gave me a little space to navigate it slightly differently. And that over the course of a few weeks, there was some learning that happened that gave me that confidence that yeah, even looking at anger. Even that, even looking at self-hatred is a path, is a, a, a um, direction. And so some of it, I think, at first you do have to borrow, kind of borrow the confidence of someone else. You know, like I borrowed it from my teacher. I borrowed it from my friend at first, a friend who'd sent me a book that said, this has helped me. And it's like, oh, I don't get how it works, but I'll give it a try because nothing else has worked. And within a few weeks, there was some real clear understanding of, oh, this does work. There's something here. And so there was more willingness to engage. So, you know, the, it's actually looking at what is hardest to look at. And, and that willingness to just kind of set aside your idea that it's a problem or set aside the idea that it's not the path and just explore what happens if I try it. So. It's a little pep talk, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for letting me borrow from you, Andrew. <laughs> You're welcome. And Nicholas, we have just a, a minute or two, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's brief. I wanted to share that the reflection, this is nature, or sometimes for me, watching nature unfold is mm. language that helps. It, I've noticed it's kind of, it shifts the tone from like watching life, like an action movie where it's like, Oh my God, is the hero going to finally win? To like sitting back and watching a landscape and just kind of taking in the bigness of it. Yeah. That's what I found too, about the nature reflection that it just reminds me in a way somehow that 
this being, this kind of this system is just another part of the whole like unfolding of life. Gill sometimes uses the phrase that, that um, what we are as human beings is life getting to, to know itself, you know, just like nature observing itself. So yeah, it's it's it does it does help it does help that for me too. It really is a um uh a support for that. And also for me it kind of supports the recognition of the kind of letting go of a judgment about what is arising. It's just oh, this these are just the conditions, you know. I can't go back and change the past, but I can have a different relationship with what's here in the moment. 